Well, good morning, guys. Thanks so much for joining us this Sunday at New City Church. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that all of us have opinions on things. And it's interesting when it comes to our opinions how, how like, we can... It's hard for us to believe that people think otherwise than us, right? Otherwise, we would also think what they think. So it's funny. Like, big things or small things, we all feel some sort of way when someone disagrees with us. So just real quick, uh, audience participation, raise your hands here. Um, how do you pronounce the word G-I-F, GIF or GIF? If you pronounce it GIF, just go ahead and raise your hand, loud and proud. Okay, like five of you. you how do you pronounce it GIF? Okay, so, okay, wow, a lot of people are wrong. Um, that's the, so that's interesting, right? Or here's another controversial topic, right? Is a hot dog a sandwich? If you would say a hot dog is a sandwich, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, good, that's better, because uh, that, that's weird. Um, I, when it comes to toilet paper, right, we have opinions. So pretend I'm the wall, and this is the holder. Over would be, you know, the toilet paper goes over is this way, under is like towards me. How many of you would say you need to hang the toilet paper over? Right? Okay, good. We almost have 100% participation. Um, when you use toilet paper, do you fold it or crunch? No, I'm just kidding. Don't want to know. I don't want to know how you use it. Um, what's also funny is things that you don't even know you have an opinion on, once you have an opinion, it's like, it's weird. Like, so like when I was preparing for this, I had never thought of this before, right? Is a cereal a type of soup? I had never thought, wait, I mean, you say no, but then some of you think a hot dog's a sandwich. Like, what's the difference? I don't know. But, like, that's weird. Or, like, the color green, um, what flavor should it be? Should it be sour or should it be apple? Like, which one should it be? It's like, oh, I don't know, right? And so, you, immediately, you have an opinion in your mind, and it's like, how could somebody think otherwise? Now, the thing is, with these, you know, it's, it's interesting, it's funny, because we realize these kind of funny things, like, they don't really matter in terms of relationally, like they don't impact how we care for, interact with other people. We know like at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. So like we don't get really that mad if people do something or think something differently. The problem we run into, however, is that when we have opinions on issues that are actually real, uh, where we actually have significant disagreements and we think these disagreements can lead to uh, wo uh, much different outcomes, whether it's politically or ideologically, like some of these big things, especially for us as we're coming to you know, election season, if you vote for someone or if you do something a certain way, it impacts a lot of things. And so it can be really hard when we disagree with people over things that we think really, really matter. And today, we're finishing our series, Let's Talk About It, where we've talked about a number of things that impact all of us. We've talked about porn and depression, uh, doubting our faith, shame and regret, forgiveness. And today, we're going to end on talking about church and politics. Now, as a side note, it was really funny. Christina, she works for this online marriage ministry called Awesome Marriage. You should check it out. It's great. And uh, one of the people that she, she's over, uh, she was talking to this guy who wor works in Georgia. So they've got a team that, you know, different people all over the country. And they were having a conversation about a month ago about how we're doing this series called Let's Talk About It. And this guy's like, oh, our church is doing this series too. And Christina's like, oh, like, what are you guys talking about? And he's like, family, marriage, you know, friendship, and then he asked Christina, what are you guys talking about? And he, she's like, oh, like porn, politics, depression. And he said, oh, we would never do that at our church. Like we just, we couldn't do that. And so that's what we've been doing. Uh, and so today the question for us is this, how should we treat people who politically vote differently, uh, think differently, who are adversaries, maybe you might call them enemies at some point, or our opponents, how should we treat these people who differ on things that are very significant to us? Now, here's the thing, as we're getting into this, you might say, well, I don't vote, and so it doesn't, it's not that big of a deal for me, but here's what I know, right? All of us have preferences and things that we would like to see happen, and things that even disgust us about various 
views in various positions. And I, I just want to be honest, too, this morning. Uh, it's not, I'm not even saying it's necessarily wrong to be disgusted at certain things, at certain evils, at certain things. But how do we disagree with people even significantly but still care for them in a way that Christ might want us to do that? And how do we engage in a political process, particularly if you would say you're a follower of Jesus that honors him? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so uh, the first thing I want to do is I want to read a passage in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be in a couple other various uh, spots today. You can put on the screen. Um, So you can read them all on the screen, or if you want to read along in the Bibles, you can as well. We'll be looking at a couple of passages. But to start this out, talking about church and politics, how should we engage in this process and really engage in other people who might significantly disagree with us? 1 John was written by one of Jesus' disciples, John, and he says things here that might not be new to some of us, but living them out can sometimes be hard. Here's what he says in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was re- revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. So what is John talking about here? How God sent Jesus into the world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He didn't wait till we figured it all out. He didn't wait till we behaved a certain way that right in the midst of our sin and our shame, Jesus came to love us. This is the gospel that God through Jesus redeems us, not ourselves and our, our ideologies and our working really hard. Now, this sounds really nice. And again, for many people, this isn't necessarily new. But here's what we know. Knowing something and actually living it are two very different things, right? There's a lot of things that you and I know that we don't always live. Like we know how to be really healthy. We know how to exercise or we, we might know the best way to plan our days. Or we might know, you know, we shouldn't be on our phone so much. We know a lot of things, but just because we know it doesn't actually mean we should, we, we do it. And when it comes in the, in the realm of maybe political ideologies or political preferences, it can be really easy to forget, because we get, we get so worked up over these things that have really practical implications, and so it makes sense. But what happens is that even if our motives are genuine, right, like you legitimately think, and again, all of us do to some degree, that a certain policy or politician will make things worse if they win, and you don't want that to happen. And so, uh, you know, understandably, we then can justify the means by which we try to ensure that our side wins, that we can forget this important imperative to love because this tangible thing right in front of us makes it easy for us to justify, well, I know I'm supposed to love, and I know I'm not typically supposed to say these things or interact in these ways or maybe post these things with this tone online, but this is so important that people need to know. And so the question for all of us, particularly if we're followers of Jesus and we think about politics and how that should impact our lives, is to ask ourselves this question. Are we willing to love people like Jesus did? So as we think about politics and our convictions and our preferences, which are not wrong at all, 
especially in an election season, are we willing to love people even in the midst of these things like Jesus did? Now, what did Jesus do? Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Now, this is not new. You, you, you're probably familiar with this. Even if you're new to the church, like you, you probably heard like Jesus hung out with like the down and out. And in the first century Roman Empire, tax collectors for Jews were like the worst of the worst. They betrayed their families and friends. They got rich off of making sure that their fellow uh, Jewish people were oppressed by the Romans, uh, sinners, you know, just the bad people in the world. Now, for us, we actually, because we, were, we are heavily influenced by Jesus and Christianity and these ethics today, we kind of applaud that. We think that's a, a good thing. But what we can also forget is that Jesus did not just hang out with the down and out and the sinners. Jesus also hung out with the rich and the politicians, he did both of those things. He hung out with religious leaders. And many of the religious leaders, particularly in Jew- Jerusalem and in the major Jewish cities, also were, everything was run, you know, religion and, and the state were kind of together. They were political. And so if Jesus were here today, we, we might say, yeah, you hang out with the down and out. But I think if we're honest, how would you and I feel if we saw pictures floating around on social media of Jesus hanging out with Bill Gates or Elon Musk or Donald Trump? or Joe Biden, and not just like hanging out being nice, but like in their houses laughing together, like actually befriending these people. I think if we're honest, depending on who it is, we might feel a little uncomfortable. Like we might think, well, he's only with them because of their money or because of their power or because of their connections. Jesus hung out with people from all shades of the spectrum. In fact, there is no doubt in my mind, because this is what happened in in the first century, there's no doubt in my mind that all of us, regardless of our political preferences, affiliations, ideologies, any of these things, that all of us would be offended by Jesus. We all would. There are certain things that he would do, say, or be, be, or people he would be around that would make us be like, man, I'm not sure that that's actually a good thing. And knowing that, here here would be my hope. Like in this hypothetical world that Jesus was here today, I have no doubt in my mind that I would be offended and upset with what he's doing. My hope is that I would be humble enough to think, to, to ask Jesus or to, to pray that I would get understanding as to why Jesus is doing the things that he's doing, that he would help me learn and that I might see what he's doing, who he's around, uh, check myself why I don't like that, and that I might be at least willing to learn from Jesus to, instead of condemn him, which is what everyone pretty much did to some degree or the other in the first century. I would hope that I would let Jesus challenge me. And that's the uh, hope for us, too, for following Jesus when it comes to politics. Are we letting Jesus challenge how we engage this process? Because what's interesting is not only did he, like, hang out and befriend lots of different people, but even his followers, like his closest 12 disciples, you also see this little awkward relationship happening. For example, in Matthew chapter 10, it's one of the few times in the Gospels, it'll be on the screen as well, where, where we are given a, a list of all 12 disciples in one place. And just, I just want to read this and point out something really significant about Jesus' own followers. It says this, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, what's significant about this list is that there are only two disciples in this list that are given a description that has nothing to do with their family or their location. Two people. It's Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot. 
Now, I'm sure there's more than just one reason why this is the case, but there is no doubt in my mind, at least I think, um, why Matthew thinks it's important and appropriate to point out Matthew or si- Matthew the, the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Because in the first world of Rome, these would have been the most politically opposite as you can get. So Matthew's a tax collector. Really, all of the disciples probably would not have been happy that Jesus included him. He's someone who was a Jew, who at some point in his life kind of really joined the Roman Empire, taxed his fellow brothers and sisters, Jewish people, got rich off of them, helped them be oppressed. I mean, you were hated. So you have one, you know, essentially supporting the state and getting rich off of it. And then you had a zealot. And the zealot movement were people who often through violence would do anything necessary to fight against Roman oppression. And in fact, Jewish history in the Roman world, you can see various skirmishes and things that took place many times because this zealot group led the charge. They would have been the complete opposite. I wouldn't necessarily use like maybe, you know, a Republican, Democrat, all the way to the extreme because their political system was just so much different than ours. But really, even in Simon's case, I mean, he would be willing to kill people like Matthew that he did because he disagreed with so strongly. So you had two people, if we were to use modern terms, uh, wouldn't be friends on Facebook, would have no relationship with anyone in the other camp, would probably use the term those people to describe those people because I have found, at least in my life, that this is a term that I often use if I don't know anyone relationally in a certain demographic or stereotype. You, you would say those people. They would have hated each other, and yet... In the midst of this extreme disagreement that no doubt probably caused some contentious conversations many times, in the midst of all of that, they had found something greater and more important that bound them together. They had found something greater and more important that bound them together. Now, it is extremely unlikely. I mean, maybe in our mind it sounds nice, but it is extremely unlikely that they dropped their political ideas and beliefs just because they started following Jesus. But what happened, if we were to put maybe modern language on it, that these opinions and beliefs were not their identity anymore. That they had found something more important that brought them together. Now, this happens, uh, you know, in communities or even nations at, at large, at, at big scale. When certain things happen, sometimes people join together. You see there's a sport teams maybe who are different, but like they have a common cause. So at least for a while, like we're all on the same team, even though we're different. You see this, you know, 9-11, if you were around and remember, was a great example of this, where you have this massive tragedy and the whole country unites Except if we're being honest, except for like the Middle Eastern population, there was a lot of racism and, and really unjust behavior towards those people after 9-11. But if you were to take that group out, everyone else in America, at least for a short time, there was this unification between people who otherwise would have nothing to do with each other. Like if you remember George W. Bush, you know, throwing out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium to a standing ovation, right? New York's a liberal state. He's a conservative president. There is no other time where you would see something like that. Or his approval rating was one of the highest in North in U.S. history. Um, all these things because there was something that we found at the least at that moment for at least a few months was more important than our differences. The difference, however between stuff like that and moments in time and what Simon and Matthew had to do, or what Matthew, yeah, the, the zealot and Simon Matthew Tackler had to do, is that this was not a one-time thing. This is, not, this is not a few months thing. This was the rest of their lives. They had to find a way to be unified and together over something greater than the things that before Jesus would have tore them apart. And when I think about it for us as followers of Jesus, particularly in the church, here's something I think we need to understand and know. And that is that when politics become greater than the church, or politics become greater than the church, when a church has no diversity of politics. 
So a sign that politics have become the most important thing in the church or a church body is that among its people, there is no diversity in political preference or ideology. Let me explain what I mean. So politics become greater than the church. I mean the church universal followers of Jesus when a local church in the church body has no diversity in politics. So in other words, if you're going to be at this church or any hypothetical church, the, the underlying assumption is you must vote this way and think these things. Otherwise, you really shouldn't be here. Now, of course, a caveat to this would be if you're in a part of the country where it's like 90% of the people in this county vote the same way, you would expect that to maybe see itself in the church. But in a place like Raleigh, where it is like we're one of the few states in the country that actually determines who's going to be president, right? Like it, we should not, you, you, you should hopefully not expect the church to have 90% of the people are voting the same way. And if that's happened, it's probably a sign that what's the most important thing, Jesus, has been supplanted by something else. Now, here's what I know when I say this, right? We, ought, we can think, but the other side is wrong. Or the other side is unbiblical, and so if they leave our church, or if those people that think that don't come to our church, well, that's not really our fault, because we want to follow Jesus and the scriptures, and I'm, I'm all for that. And so they don't agree with us, and our position is more biblical, or so we think, and so we shouldn't expect to have a diversity of political opinion if the other side is obviously wrong and unbiblical. And I hear that, but I think there's two caveats or two important things we need to understand when it comes about politics, particularly in American politics. One is that in politics involve much more than scripture actually speaks to. So yes, there are certainly moral issues at stake in these political processes that followers of Jesus can unify around. But there's a lot of things that scripture does not say governments must run a certain way. Now, we can have preferences, we can think they are wise, and that's great, but they're not necessarily biblical. Like, the Bible has, does not say this economic policy is what countries must run in order for them to be really faithful. The Bible does not say this immigration policy is, must, should be in place in order to, for it to be biblically faithful. Now, I'm not saying you can't read the scriptures and, and, and derive wisdom and try to come up with policies, but we have to just be honest. That there's a lot of uh, ambiguity that faithful Christians can disagree on a lot of things that impact our political thoughts and who we vote for. So there's a lot of things that scripture just doesn't vote, doesn't speak to. So we should expect a diversity of opinion. The second thing, I just want to be honest, I just speak for myself. Here's what I know, that when I look at people that I disagree with politically, here's what I know, that if I had had the same lived experience as them, I would definitely most likely vote the same way that they do. If I had had the same lived experience as them, I would also probably vote like they do. Now, here's the thing. Just because you and I have had a lived experience, it doesn't mean that it's the, the right thing to do, or just because our beliefs that we get from our experience in life are necessarily right. So I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying I probably would do the same thing, which means I should give people grace who have a different background, cultural background, family background than I do, because I have been uh, very shaped by simply my experiences in life. And here's also what I know, that at this church, I mean, I think churches in general, but I'll just speak at New City because this is our church. Here's what I know. From all of our people, if you're a partner, you call New City Church home, you've been here, here's what I know about us, right? We want people to experience the love of Jesus. I know that's what we want. Which means that meeting people and welcoming people where they are at is really important. That we don't want to be a place where you have to check all the right political and ideological boxes in order to come here and in order to be welcomed. 
And listen, there's a lot of very, very faithful Christians who can vary in their political preferences that can land different places. Again, it doesn't mean we have to agree necessarily with a position. It doesn't mean we have to like a position. It doesn't mean that we can't be vocal about a position that we think is right and good. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but it does mean for us that someone can vote differently and still be welcome here because you can vote differently and still be welcome into God's kingdom. Right? It is what Jesus is what unites us, not our differences. And here's what I know, right? Like, a lot of people would say, I want a diverse church, whether it's ethnically, socioeconomically, politically. We want that. But in order to live in it means you and I are going to be uncomfortable. We cannot say we want people from all stripes and walks of life, but then have this underlying assumption, but if you're really going to be here, you have to agree with me. It's, this is what this means, that it's uncomfortable in our community group sometimes where somebody says something that you don't like or that you, you disagree with, that, that our, our first response can't be like, well, I'm leaving or they need to get out. But hey, we have found something greater that unites us above even our really important political preferences. When politics become greater than the church, or you know politics have become the most important thing in a church, when a church, particularly in an area like ours, has no diversity of political opinion, that we are a diverse group of people with diverse backgrounds who probably wouldn't all be in the same room except something greater has united us. This is some of the implications of what John says, that when we love people, that we will love them where they are, not where we want them to be. In fact, he continues by saying this in 1 John a few verses later in verse 16, by talking about love, he says this, God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. Verse 17, in this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So then the one who fears is not complete in love because, or verse 19, here's the point. We love, why? Because he, because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Now, here's what I also often, here's what I know when it comes to like our political thoughts and our processes and our, and our motivations. We might think, well, I don't hate others. They are just wrong and I need to correct them. And you might, I mean, I, I, don't, and I know that sounds harsh, but like you might be saying that from a good posture, like they're just wrong. What they're advocating for isn't right. And so I need to make sure I correct them. And I hear that. But the question for us is, what does it actually mean to love? I think what this means for us, particularly with a political season and process, is this, that our primary goal is to love people where they are, not for where we want them to be. Not where, hey, I'm going to befriend you and be nice to you and give you grace and compassion so that I can talk to you and hopefully get you to change your position. But if you don't change your position, then after a while, I'm going to be upset with you. That's not what it means to love. What it means to love is regardless of who you vote for or what you think or what you do, I'm going to continue to have a posture of love and grace and mercy towards you, even if it means it's really hard for me. What it means to love them is to love them today, not where we think they might be if they follow Jesus and then in three years we can get them to switch their political party affiliation. What it means to love is that even in the midst of our significant disagreements, are we willing to say that something is more important? Because here, if I could do three things, practically, here's what happens. Here's what happens when we are not careful, when our politics become greater than our, fault, than our allegiance to Jesus. Here's what happens. Number one, when politics are a means, our politics are a means, not an end. We need to remember this. 
when it comes to, again, politics have real practical implications, but we have to remember, if you are a follower of Jesus, at least, that politics are a means, they are not an end. They are important, they are significant, and they absolutely matter, but they are not and cannot be God. They are not and cannot be God. No politician or party or policy can change a human heart. Now, as I say that, I also want to be clear. This is not to say policies don't matter. They absolutely matter. There's a well-known quote by Martin Luther King Jr. who said, uh, a, a law may not change a man's heart, but it can keep a man from lynching me, and that's pretty good too. So, we, so like, I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. We have, like, I don't care if somebody doesn't agree with a policy if it means that, that human flourishing is being advanced. So I, we should be involved in this process. As a side note, I have voted in every midterm and presidential election since I was 18 years old. Like I, I'm in it. I'm not saying don't do it, but I am saying that it cannot be an end because Jesus is our end. So here's what happens, right? When politics are an end, here's what can happen. People are the problem. When politics are an end, people are the problem. So no longer is it for followers of Jesus sin or our own selfish pride or, G or Satan, our enemy, but people, when, sorry, when politics aren't in, people are the problem. And you can see how even when our motivations are good, we can then start to speak and to say and interact with people in an unloving way because unintentionally, we have now made people the problem. And here's the biggest problem with that, right? When people are the problem, they become enemies to defeat instead of a family to love. When people are the problem, they become people that we must defeat at all costs, that we might say and do things that we would typically say I shouldn't do because our policy or our, our political person is more important than anything else. Now, again, the tension for all of us is who we vote for and these policies have real practical implications today. And so, of course, they're going to be emotionally convicting to us. Of course, we're going to want good to happen. But if we're followers of Jesus, I just have to say this. Who are we trusting? Are we willing to vote our conscious and honor God in that and still love people and say, Jesus, even if my person doesn't make it, even if this policy fails, I'm still going to trust you, that you are over all things, even if for the next couple of years, I might not, I might not like at all what's actually happening. When people are the problem, they become enemies to defeat instead of a family to love. And it becomes really hard for us if you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, to do what John is telling us to do, to treat other people the way Jesus has treated us. Right? When people are a problem, it's really hard to do this. Romans 12 says it this way. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. If your political opponent is a problem, you can't do this. Verse Peter 4 says, above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Or Galatians 6 says, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Be there for people, even if you disagree with them. Colossians 3, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. If Jesus is not our ultimate prize, our ultimate longing, our ultimate goal, then it's really hard to do this with people we significantly disagree with. 
Ephesians 4 says, no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Or John 13, last one, Jesus says it this way. I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, how you live this out practically, I think it's different in different seasons and different communities and different relational contexts. Again, this is not to say you can't speak up or speak out or be convictionally you know, aligned, or, but how we even communicate these things should matter. Or put it another way, here's what we see, particularly when it comes to our political engagement and process. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's what we need to know, that how you vote is not as important as how you love. How you vote is not as important as how you love. I'm not saying it doesn't matter how you vote, but we do need to understand this. It doesn't change your value to God or his love for you. You can vote the quote-unquote wrong way, how you might have assumed that, or the most quote-unquote unbiblical way, and it will not change that God still loves you. It won't. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean we shouldn't, you know, prayerfully consider our positions and research stuff, and we should do all these things. Again, I've I've voted in every single election that I can, but it is not it is not even close to the most important thing you and I can do, which is how we treat and love people. If I could just one of the things that makes me so angry during these political seasons, and you see this on the right and on the left, when you have pastors or well-known Christian people, whatever, and they have this kind of air that like, you must vote for this person. If not, you are in sin. It's like, if you, you, you do not love, if you vote for the wrong person, you don't love Jesus. And it's almost as if they don't even, you could be the most sinful, the most, I don't even care about honoring God at all with my life. But as long as I vote for the right person, I'm good. That is not, that is so far away from what Jesus is asking for us to do. Listen, you can vote wrongly, however you think that is, and still be a faithful follower of Jesus if you are loving your neighbor the way he's asking you to do it. It's, we, we, just, we cannot equate faithfulness to Jesus with Donald Trump or faithfulness to Jesus with Joe Biden or faithfulness to Jesus to third party or because the whole thing's messed up. Faithful Christians, they don't vote at all. We cannot equate that. Faithfulness to Jesus is love. That's it. How you vote is not as important as how you love. You should, I'm all for voting. Again, I voted in every single one, but that is so far and away, not at all the most important thing that you and I can do if we're followers of Christ. Again, Jesus puts it this way. The last passage I'll read in Matthew chapter five, he says this. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same to so the people that these people assume were the worst of the worst. Jesus is saying the people that you think are the worst of the worst, well, they do that too. They love the people that are nice to them. Verse 47, and if you only greet your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Here he's talking about like your, your religious, you know, ethnic inner circle. As long as you're kind to the people who look and think like you do, everybody does that. Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Yeah, verse 47, if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles, in this case, those who are non-followers of God, don't even they do the same thing? Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or put another way, hey, I'm going to love and care and speak nice to you, 
But if you vote differently than me, even if, like, if I could just say, even if what they're voting for is objectively wrong, like this, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to love, I'm not going to care for you. That is not to do what Jesus asks us to do. That are we willing, even if it makes us mad, even if we don't agree with it, even if it makes us uncomfortable, to simply care for people and see them as people created in the image of God whom we should love, even if they vote in a way that we think is totally wrong. Or if I could, um, this is like a little, this is a paraphrase that I have come up with, and I've shared this before. If I could maybe paraphrase this part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for our cultural, modern American political moment, here's how I would put it, and this will be on the screen as well. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your political opponents. But I tell you, love those who believe differently than you and pray for those who don't vote like you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the Republicans and the Democrats and sends rain on the Democrats and the Republicans. For if you love those who vote like you, what reward will you have? Don't even the lobbyists do the same? And if you greet your political allies, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the left and right wing leaning news outlets do the same? Be loving, therefore, as your heavenly Father is loving. <laughs> One of the biggest marks of followers of Jesus in this time is to love the people who vote differently than us. If I could, if, if, if I could sum up what we're talking about here this morning, here's how, here's how I put it. We need to remember, if we're, as followers of Jesus, that what unites us is greater than what divides us. We don't come together because we all wear the same thing or we all make the same amount of money or we all look the same or we all vote the same. The reason we are here, the reason you're watching, all the reason billions of Christians gather all over the globe is because of Jesus, who is greater than all these things. And if Jesus loved his enemies, and if you and I want to follow Jesus, then we will too. Right? That's how you actually live out the gospel. You don't just read 1 John and says, oh, that sounds so nice. But you say, you know what? I'm actually willing to love and to care for people and befriend them, even if they never vote differently. To be kind to them, even if what I think they're voting for actually is bad. That I'm going to trust Jesus and I'm going to love them the way Jesus has loved me. So again, hear me. Vote, be engaged, have conviction, but never stop loving people. And one of the things that's becoming increasingly harder in our culture today, because social media and you amplified it and you see it, what everyone thinks, what everyone says, it is becoming harder and harder to be a church of diverse thought, to be a church of diverse ideological thought, to be a church of diverse political thought, because unintentionally we can start assuming following Jesus also means voting for X, Y, and Z. And if we want to be a church that has Democrats and Republicans and third party and political people that don't care, that are totally apathetic, we have to unite around Jesus and be okay when people say things that are uncomfortable. To be okay, like, here's the thing. If you need to unfollow someone at New City Church because you don't like who, they, who, they, who they're voting for, they're, then do it. But don't stop coming to the church. Like, don't try to find a church that everyone votes the way that I do. Like, we have to remember that Jesus is what unites us. And if our eyes are on Jesus, then we can coexist with significant disagreements. If Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, who Simon before following Jesus would have killed Matthew with no guilty conscience, like not just like blocked, but like killed him, they could figure it out. We can figure it out too. 
And what a beautiful representation of heaven, of having people who otherwise would never be in the same room, who otherwise would never be kind to another, who otherwise would never speak a kind word, who otherwise certainly wouldn't pray for the good of their opponents. What unites us is greater than what divides us, and that is Jesus. And to the degree that we will unite about that, around that, that we can rather every single political season. But if our eyes lose focus on Jesus and his gospel, and what he has done for us, that is when we can have a problem. We can have a problem, at least in the Raleigh area, if we become a church that everyone has to vote the same way, or at least the assumption is you're going to vote this way, then we've lost sight on what's important. We've got to be uncomfortable because Jesus loved us in the midst of our mess. We are going to love people in the midst of our disagreements with them. What unites us is greater than what divides us. And so to close, I want to read a story or share a story uh, from someone in our church. Uh, she told me I could share this, so I have this with her permission. Uh, she told me this, a woman in our church told me this story earlier this year. And so when I knew I was going to preach on this, I was like, hey, I've, your story, that you, what you did exemplified exactly what, what I want to get across today. And so here's, she said I could share it. Uh, earlier this year, here, here's, how, here's how it goes. A woman in our church, true story, uh, went to the Wake County Correction, uh, Corrections Facility, uh, to obtain a background check that was required to uh, apply for a liquor license uh, for a wedding. And so when she got there, she arrived, she noticed there was a man, she's a white woman, there was a black man on, the be on a bench uh, dressed in all white that she figured was getting released from jail. And uh, as she passed by him, she told him that she was praying for him. And this one, by the way, if you know her, she is a prayer warrior. She'll pray for anyone or anything at any time. I mean, she is awesome. And so she said, I'll pray for you. And then as she watched the building, she said she felt convicted that God said, like, if you're going to, if you say you're going to pray for him, why don't you actually go and pray for him? Like, don't just say it or don't just do it later, but like, why don't you do it now? And so she, her, she kind of prayed to herself, Lord, have him still be there when my appointment is over so that I can come out and pray for him. And so she does her appointment, she leaves, uh, and as she's leaving the building, she sees this man is now outside, and so she walks up to him, she introduced herself, and she said they talked, and she asked this man if she could pray for him. She says yes, she prays for him, she mentions uh, some scripture in her prayer, and after she said amen, the guy said, I actually just read that same scripture this morning. And so they agree that God had brought them together, and he starts telling her his story, that he had been part of a gang, that he, he murdered a man when he was 17 years old, got thrown in prison. And then he got out of prison, and after he got out of prison, for however long his sentence was, he'd been there for a while, he, he fell back into that life, had a warrant out for his arrest, and was on the run for three years. He finally turns himself in because he said he was tired of being on the run. He, got, he was in jail. Again, he was finishing a three-year sentence, and he tells her that during this last sentence, he became a Christian. He had a man that was sharing Jesus with him. He started attending this Bible study. He was reading the Bible. And he gave his life to Christ. And he told her, he said, nobody believes me, but I've told everyone when I get out of here, I'm not going back to that life, that Jesus has changed me, that I'm a different man. But he's like, everyone's like, we'll see you again. He's like, no one believes me, but I'm not doing that again. And so they talked about the forgiveness of sins and how God loves us and how Jesus sustains us. And, and she said that they talked for an hour and a half. And I share this because I love it. Here's what she said at the end. As they were leaving, <laughs> she told him that they should connect on Facebook. And she said, as I told him that, um, I remember that about all the things that I share on Facebook, that she's, she's, not, she's not mean, she's not angry, but she's like, I'm very politically conservative, and I share my views. And so she said, I have to tell you something. His name is Richard. <laughs> she said, I have to tell you something, Richard. I like Donald Trump. She said, I like Donald Trump. And so they talked a little bit longer, and she, she goes on to say, she said, listen, the world tells us that me as a white woman who supports Donald Trump, that I get labeled a certain way. And the world would say people like you and, for, like you and me uh, shouldn't interact with one another. She said, the truth is, she said, and this is what, she said, the truth is I love Jesus 
more than anyone. I love Jesus more than a political party. I love Jesus more than anything else. And that as believers, it doesn't matter the color of our skin or our views that we can disagree, but we are relatives, that we are stronger than any earthly relation, that the blood of Jesus joins us as brothers and sisters as Christ. Now, here's, here, why do I share this story? I think it sounds, to some of us, it sounds really nice. She went out of her way to pray for somebody. Until we hear that she votes for Donald Trump. And then we start to think, some of us might think, well, if she really loves Donald Trump, I don't think she would vote for him. Or some of us might think, well, yeah, that's who she should, should, should vote for. Or some of us might have liked that story if I had said that she voted for Joe Biden. What's interesting is we love the story, but then we hear the politics and we begin to think, I'm not so sure I like it anymore. And the reason I share this story, because this is the church that I want us to be, to be okay having very significant political differences, but being willing to say, but I love Jesus more. That we might disagree, that we might not like some of our preferences, but that's not going to stop me from loving you. That's not going to stop me for, from praying for you. That's not going to stop me from befriending you. That what unites us is greater than what divides us. Jesus' blood and his sacrifice brings us together, not our preferences and not who we vote for. So again, vote, have convictions, uh, have preferences, even talk about them in a loving way. But remember, Jesus brings us together. He is greater than all these things. And so we can have differences and it not be awkward or not tear us apart because Jesus is greater.